Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's The Sidebar, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I am your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based here in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for close to a decade. We are recording this on Friday, June 3rd, 2022. Today we are excited to be joined by Dina Dahl, a corporate transactional attorney, mediator, trial consultant, and a legal analyst on the Law and Crime Network. Dina, welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Dina, lots of news uh, to get into, including a very huge verdict that happened uh, last week or, or earlier this week. And if you were living under a rock, you've already heard about it. But if we, uh, before we jump into all of those, uh, please tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you got your start. Yeah, well, I got my start. I'm, I went to school here in LA, so we're neighbors. Yeah. Went to USC for law school as well, and then started out at Gibson, Dunn and Crutcher, as you said, as a corporate attorney, and then started my own law firm. My husband and I started our own law firm. We're both former Gibson people, and I became. I went from being a corporate attorney and then I was a mediator and I love the process of trying to get people to resolve their differences and the, the people behind the cases. I say every case is personal. And uh, so then I went from that to being a trial consultant and that's what I do for our firm there. And then I love, like you said, following true crime cases and all sorts of cases for Long Crime Network and other uh, media outlets. Fantastic. Well, I know you are really got your, your your finger to the pulse of all of these things, so I'm really interested to hear some of your thoughts. Um, and the first case we're going to talk about is one that's been around for a while. This is the murder of Kristen Smart is now going to trial after 25 years. Uh, this happened out of Monterey County, California. Paul Flores is facing murder charges in the death of 19-year-old Kristen Smart, a Cal Poly freshman who disappeared after an off-campus party in 1996. Paul was the last person seen with Kristen prior to her disappearance. 
His father, interestingly, Ruben Flores, is facing charges related to helping conceal the body. Kristen Smart's body was never found, but she was declared dead on May 25, 2002, six years after her disappearance. The men were arrested in April of 2021, nearly two decades later. Two juries will be selected, one for Paul Flores and another for Ruben Flores, and the trial was moved uh, to Salinas, California, after a San Luis Obispo Superior Court judge ruled that Paul and Ruben would not likely receive a fair trial in San Luis Obispo. Um, how much do you remember about this case, Dina? You know, I remember her disappearance. For sure know her name. Yeah. Definitely recognize her face. But not much more than that, which I, I don't think I knew much more than that, actually, right. at the time. But yeah, I mean, I, she's, I definitely remember her. I know that in that community, though, it was a, it overtook that community. It was a huge case. It was one of those things where, you know, national media came in about this missing girl. She'd been gone for so long. They, they, they um, uh, declared her dead, you know, several years later. How extraordinary is it for a, the judge in this case essentially granted a change of venue because he said because of all of that coverage and because of the small community that they could not be given a fair trial in that area, even 25 years later. How extraordinary is that to you? I would think it's pretty extraordinary. I mean, we've seen so many high profile cases, even Derek Chauvin didn't get a change right. of venue, right? But to your point there about this being a small community, the judge, when he was kind of deliberating this said, you know, they still talk about it at the dinner table the neighbors, the community. And that's a level of, you know, maybe impartiality to the jurors, you would say. I could see why the judge would have thought that's difficult because in, you know, larger cities and areas, even though we, a lot of people see the media, it's maybe not something people are discussing still at the dinner table 25 years after something like this happened. Yeah, I, I, I was surprised by the judge's decision too because you, you, you would expect it kind of more in a case like Derek Chauvin where it was so recent and so impactful on that community that, you know, you would think the time, the distance of 25 years would be enough that they would think, no, there are probably some people here who, who, who you know, were, were kids who might be part of our jury pool uh, when this was all happening and maybe that didn't affect them. But the judge obviously felt differently. So we'll see if that has any effect on the case. Um, how about the difficulties of just getting a conviction for a case that's 25 years old? You know, our juries are so used to having so much evidence these days. The first thing I thought of was the lack of all the surveillance video. I mean, yeah. I know, you know, can you imagine how many um, criminal trials we see right now where the convictions really come from the surveillance video, right? I, um, they you know, the Walmart, they bought the trash bags and the things to clean up. And it's just amazing what police can find. So much of our lives are actually on tape and we don't even realize it. But that's not the, ca the case 25 years ago. You know, she, they say she was spotted with him last, but certainly I'm sure they don't have that kind of um, footage that could really track what happened. And then never mind just the witnesses. You know, how good are their memories going to be after 25 years? I think this is going to be a really hard case for them to get a conviction, unless they have something up their sleeve that we just obviously don't know about yet. Yeah, and that, you make a good point. And I, I really appreciate what you say about it's not just that they, they 
they don't have the evidence. The evidence didn't exist. The technologies didn't exist back then. Like so many of today's cases are put together through cell phone tracking, right? GPS, where were people at? Well, I can tell you exactly where they were at. Or communication over electronics, text messages and Snapchat and, and emails that they can reconstruct where people were at, who they were talking to, what they were concerned with. None of that exists. I mean, it's just it it's just this vacuum. And I think that's why it took so long to put this together. Um, but you make an interesting well, before we move on to that, how about the fact that there's no body too? Mm-hmm. How do how how do you think that affects the prosecution's ability to put this together? Well, it's hard. I mean, obviously she has died, right? They, that's not a question because of the 25-year length. I can't even be something they'd argue. But they don't have the cause of death. Right? right. They can't determine, you know, if this wasn't somehow accidental and she died that way or so they have all that kind of evidence that normally they can also use to help them get a conviction is the cause of death. So they, they're coming from definitely a deficit here, the prosecutors. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it, you pointed out that unless they've got something up their sleeve, uh, it was funny because the sheriff noted that something, quote unquote, something of value was discovered through the search, uh, though the search of her body continues. So this is total speculation, but it sounds like for them to categorize it as something of value, it sounds like some sort of physical evidence rather than a witness coming forward. You have any thoughts you want to you want to jump into the speculation <laughs> pool on that? But, you know, I've read something that said that they think the, that the body was in the father's backyard and he dug it up and moved it oh, wow. at one point. And the fact that they think that, along with what you said, that they've discovered some sort of physical evidence, I wonder if they found something in his backyard. Although, how would they have done that? Did they have a search warrant? I'm not really quite sure. Or right. somebody else was in the backyard and found something and gave it to the police. I mean, this is totally conjecture but the fact that they found something physical they say and now they think that she was actually buried in his backyard uh yeah i think you're right that might be the one thing that they're kind of hoping is going to help them here we will definitely follow this closely because i i can imagine there's some pretty incredible evidence that must have come forward for them to make a decision on this this many years later and charge the father uh, that brings me to the, my next point. Let's talk about these dual juries and try to help explain to people why this might take place. Um, you ever dealt with anything like that before? No, actually. Yeah. Well, I, I, I have. And so maybe I'll kind of walk us both through it to help understand it. But when you've got two defendants um, and it, they have made statements that may be against each other, um, there's certain rules about hearsay and confessions on what can be used against each other. And so the way that they protect that is that they'll have two juries who will hear the case simultaneously. And this is to, to conserve resources as well. Instead of putting on two entirely separate trials, they put on two, one trial with two juries. And then at the point where they're going to ha- bring in a statement against made by one defendant against himself, they remove the jury for the other defendant so that they don't hear that statement that might implicate the, the defendant they're concerned with. And then they'll bring the other jury in and they may bring that first jury out and they do these kind of back and forth with the juries, including in closing arguments. I've, I've had to do this before where you give a closing argument and then at one point you excuse the one jury so that you can give the rest of your closing argument to the first jury. And it's just this really complicated process that 
I guess the point I'm making is on top of everything the prosecutors are do dealing with in this case, then they've got these dual juries to deal with. You think that's going to have an effect? It, yeah, that's <laughs> everything has an effect, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Thinking like a lawyer, everything has a cause and effect. But, you know, they had to do this, right? Because, yeah. like you said, he has a right. They each have a right to confront their witness and they can't put on some sort of tape statement that implicates the other without being able to do that. So they have to do it and it does conserve resources. And it also gives the prosecutor a chance to kind of make them both look guilty, right? There's a lot of upsides for the prosecutor to put them on in all other aspects of the case. So that I'm sure the prosecutor kind of wanted to do that. But like you said, there's gonna be a lot of shuffling and. And if they don't remove one of the jurors at the right time, I mean, talk about issues for appeal, oh my right? God. So yeah. there's going to be a lot of, I imagine, sidebars and all sorts of um, negotiations between the prosecution and defense about exactly when the jurors should get switched out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll, we'll continue to follow this closely and, and keep everybody clued in when that trial actually begins. All right, let's move to Leon County, Florida, where Catherine McBanois was found guilty of first-degree murder, conspiracy, and solicitation in the 2014 killing of Florida State University law professor Dan Markle. McBanois is the third person convicted in the plot. Professor Marco was gunned down in his garage in 2014. Prosecutors allege it was a murder plot organized by Dan Merkel's brother-in-law, Charles Adelson. According to prosecutors, Adelson paid $100,000 for Markle's assassination. They theorized that the motive was to return Wendy Adelson's uh, children to South Florida after her divorce from Dan Markle. Catherine was seen as the middle woman between Charles Adelson and the shooters who carried out the hit. Sigfredo Garcia was convicted as the trigger man. Catherine was romantically linked to Charles Adelson, and Sigfredo Garcia is the father of Catherine's children. Catherine was previously tied with Garcia, or pardon me, tried with Garcia in 2019, and con Garcia was convicted, but jurors were deadlocked on Catherine in that case. All right, uh, I, I hope you got all of that. Uh, because I'm, there's a quiz after the, all of this, Dina, but there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, a lot of moving parts. Everybody seems to kind of be related to everybody else. But uh, the first thing, just weigh in on the amount of people involved in this conspiracy for murder, all for something over, over child custody. Just how does that strike you, even from a non-legal perspective? You know, it's crazy. I feel like I've followed so many cases on law and crime where it does come down to either like child custody or the person just doesn't want to pay their spouse their divorce settlement. It yeah. seems crazy to me. I kind of almost see it as, you know, maybe like an extension of like domestic violence or something like that, even if you've never seen it before. But this like sense of like control, right? There had to have been some sort of like abusive element in the relationship prior because otherwise I don't see how you go from like getting married and then all of a sudden your solution is I don't want to pay the divorce or I don't want to share custody so I'm just going to kill him. Um, but we just don't like see that because there wasn't maybe the physical but to me there has to have been some sort of like still some sort of element of domestic abuse going on to get you to that point. Yeah yeah I, I agree with you there especially in these these kind of um desperate murder for hire cases you do seem to be there there's always seems to be some sort of family element there there's this deep seated 
hatred and, and animosity that causes someone to, to, they may not want to do the dirty work themselves, but in this case, at least allegedly, they'll, they'll pay good for it to the tune of $100,000 to have someone murdered uh, just to have the kids move to another state. Pretty incredible stuff. Let's talk about uh, the conspiracy charges. How, how is that an advantage for the prosecution in this case? Well, it's an advantage because they get to, you know, help their primary case because they had these co-conspirators and especially with her latest trial, they had already been convicted, which makes it stronger for the prosecutor as well, because, you know, the fact is that clearly there was a scheme. They'd already proved this scheme by convicting right. the others. And there's a reason why she was convicted last if you think about it because of that they couldn't have started with her she was that there was the least maybe provable involvement was on her part but it's much yeah. easier to prove uh, somebody who's least involved in a scheme for them to be convicted last like that very good point very good point it kind of the dominoes all kind of fall in one direction right um according to the state attorney jack campbell there's never been a case and this is a quote from him that had more resources brought to bear in my time in 22 years working at this. That's what State Attorney Jack Campbell had to say. I get this question a lot from people. What are your thoughts on the amount of resources expended on a case like this? We're talking several trials, now a retrial. I know we're dealing with murder, but we're also dealing with taxpayer dollars. You think any of that matters? I don't think so because it is murder. And it is true, a lot of probably lesser crimes don't get prosecuted these days. I mean, especially here in LA County. I mean, they're so overrun that you're not going to get uh, prosecution for maybe some sort of harassment case that you would have and maybe someplace else. But this is a murder and they don't want there to be them some sort of signal, right? That they're too busy or stretched too thin to go after a murder case. I mean, just on a side note, I know we're gonna talk about this later, but look how much Virginia paid in court resources for the death trial, right. even though obviously they didn't pay the lawyers, but that was a six week trial. And so, you know, private litigation takes up a lot of court resources too. So I think that in a murder case like this, they don't wanna see that, you know, they wanna make it clear that you can't get away with something like this in their jurisdiction. Yeah, I, I get, even on a professional level, I get clients who come to me and go, does the DA really want to spend resources on something like this? And I say, listen, they show up to work every single day anyways. They don't care if it's your case or somebody else's case. They're going to be there. So it, it really, it's really not a calculation that they make. Let's switch gears across the country again to talk about Bill Cosby's uh, civil cases beginning in California. After a Pennsylvania appeals court threw out Cosby's criminal conviction, Bill Cosby is now the defendant in a civil case related to allegations of a sexual assault taking place here in Santa Monica, California. Judy Huth, now 64, says that when she was 16 years old in 1975, she and a friend met Cosby at a Los Angeles area park. Days later, Cosby had her drink alcohol as, quote unquote, part of a game and then took her to the Playboy Mansion. He then took her into an isolated bedroom, this is according to allegations, kissed her on the mouth, and used her hand to perform a sex act on himself. Cosby's attorneys have admitted that he took Huth to the Playboy Mansion, but alleged that she was 18 at the time. They also allege that Huth recently changed her story, saying that she was in fact 16 rather than 15, according to her original allegations, which Cosby's attorneys say have prejudiced their case. 
Cosby's lead attorney is Jennifer Bonjean, and the sidebar actually did an interview with Bonjean regarding the Pennsylvania trial of Cosby back in October of 2021, if you guys want to go check that out. Cosby will not attend or give testimony in this trial, his representatives say, because he's uh, suffering from severe glaucoma and is essentially blind. He did give a single video deposition that will be played in the case. And Cosby can invoke his Fifth Amendment privilege as there's a chance he could still be prosecuted in California and other jurisdictions for sexual assault. Okay, Um, how do you go about mounting a case that is nearly 50 years old? We're talking civilly now. Again, we're talking old cases today. So what what about this? I know it's a lower standard of proof, but still there's got to be issues, right? I think absolutely. I mean, you, you, you take the Chris and Smart and you don't, you know, triple it here right. because, you know, there's not even any proof of the event actually happening. And I don't know if there'd be any witnesses at the Playboy Mansion that could even remember what happened. So this is going to be a tough one if it literally is just what she said. Okay, here's the thing. If she took a journal or a calendar like Justin Kavanaugh, then maybe she might have a better case. But she's going to need something like that. It, It can't just be her word. Although Bill Cosby, obviously his credibility has taken a big hit and they're going to have to sort through that when they see the jury. But I don't know still if that would be enough for her. Like you said, the standard is lower. They just have to prove it. She just has to prove it's more likely than not, right? Which is much lower than beyond a reasonable doubt. But those types of cases are hard to prove anyway, right? When there's not any kind of other extrinsic evidence. So if Again, I think if if it's literally just her memory, that's going to be a really tough one. No, I agree with you. You made a a good point about, you know, this is such an old case. But then again, we are dealing with Bill Cosby. He's got credibility issues. Do you think this case is about something else? Is this like some last desperate grasp to hold on to, to hold Cosby accountable, uh, you know, for the whole kind of Me Too movement, seeing that as many people do, that it's like he got away with it? I mean, very possibly. And it's possible, you know, I haven't looked into the facts of this case enough to really have any sense of whether or not she's telling the truth or not. But, you know, it's possible if she is telling the truth, she felt like he was getting accountability through his other conviction and it wasn't necessary to come forward. And then once that overturned, she felt uh, very upset and decided to she wanted to come forward. So it could be that I do think there's a lot of his kind of alleged victims out there that were really upset about his conviction getting overturned. So it's possible this might not be the last of it, actually. Yeah. It's interesting, though, if if both of us are right, and it does seem like this will be an extremely difficult case for them to prove, I wonder if that even further hurts the chances of anybody else bringing in action against him if this case uh, doesn't prevail. So we'll, we'll have to keep an eye on it. One last question on this. I, want, I, I was curious about your thoughts. He's not going to be present. Um, do you think that'll play a role in the jurors' heads? I mean, they don't have to look at a human being and say, you know, I know this is not about guilty or not guilty, but they don't have to look at a human being and say, yes, we find you liable. Yeah, evidently the jurors are going to be asked, you know, or, or maybe already were asked if they could, they look past the fact that he wasn't there and be right. kind of impartial and yes, that they say yes and all that kind of stuff. But they're human and I think it absolutely makes a difference. You know, when you see somebody just a few feet, feet away from you, 
telling you their story. You can assess the credibility so much more than he's going to be on a video screen. And again, about the Deb trial, you know, we saw the video screen. It's going to probably be spliced up, right, in a way that might actually even make it a little bit confusing for the jury yeah. to hear what Bill Cosby has to say. So I definitely think it hurts him. When the person's not there, I think it's just easier. It's just human nature. It's much easier to be willing to maybe give that person a consequence because again they're they are not right there and you haven't like met them in a way as a person so i i I think it's impossible not for it to make a difference i i think you're right you're not staring them in the eyes right when you when you when you hold them accountable and so it's kind of this faceless person that you're dealing with even though i'm sure they're all going to know who bill cosby is I, i i i agree with you I don't think it works for him, put it that way. It may not hurt him, but I, don't, I certainly don't think it works for him. All right, we've hinted towards it a couple of times. It's the the biggest case, you know, anybody's talking about for the last six weeks. Uh, the Depp v. Heard trial finally ended in a, a verdict. Uh, the defamation trial captivating the nation ended in Fairfax, Virginia. Depp sued ex-wife Amber Heard. For defamation related to an op-ed she wrote in the Washington Post about being a survivor of domestic violence. After six weeks of testimony and 12 hours of deliberation, the jury found Johnny's defamation suit credible. He was awarded $10 million in comp- compensatory damages and $5 million in punitive damages. Punitive damages, however, are capped in Virginia, and as a result, it was reduced to $350,000. However, at the same time, Heard's countersuit was also found true as to one of her three counts, and Heard was awarded $2 million of compensatory damages in her case. First off, did this surprise you? It didn't, actually. Okay, let's hear about it. (laughs) I mean, I was in the weeds on this case. That's why I kept bringing it up. It's hard not to think about anything else. And I was making videos and posting on social media and for me okay i didn't know anything about this i don't remember reading the washington post article i don't remember about the two i don't really i didn't really watch johnny depp's movies i was not that interested in the two of them so i was a good kind of potential juror and when she was cross-examined by camille vasquez and they put the photographic evidence up against her claims it was like she clearly was exaggerating or lying about a lot of it if not all of it and at that point she lost me i think she lost the jury and then and then i think her case just crumbled in the second cross-examination when they confronted her with the tmz employee who really testified that it had to have been her who leaked it and she kind of still insisted it wasn't and that claimed he was just lying at some point you know, I don't know what happened between the two of them, but at some point when you just lie too much or you're caught too much in inconsistencies, you're not going to win. You know, jurors do not. They were sitting there for six weeks. Uh, People don't like to be lied to. So No, I I couldn't agree with you more. I wasn't all that interested in this trial. I kind of got roped into watching it and then I was interested in it and then I watched about every minute of it that I possibly could, embarrassingly, I'll admit. Um, But... I agree with you that the absolute turning point for me was when she took the stand and she started to testify to these awful, nightmarish type um, instances of, of, of violence. I mean, at one point, and I'll never forget this, it stuck with me, she talked about how he was punching her in the face with his fist covered in a cast 
so many times that she lost count. I mean, that is horrific violence. Mm -hmm. I've, I've, I've handled domestic violence cases and they don't reach that level. And, and, and in those cases, I have pictures and she wasn't able to produce one photograph to corroborate that. And then when you're absolutely right, when, when Camille Vasquez got up and started showing photographs of the day after and she looks pristine at these events and there's no visible injuries, say what you want about um, makeup, they're not going to cover up the kind of injuries that she had described. And so I think you you, you absolutely hit, hit it right on the head with when you describe it that way and you can't back it off up with evidence, then I'm going to doubt everything you're saying. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what the jurors did is they threw it all out the window at that point. Exactly. I think they did. And they were so nuanced. You know, yeah. I, I feel like they're getting really kind of poorly characterized by Amber Heard's statement and even her lawyer kind of saying, oh, they just got, you know, manipulated by him and they were caught up in everything. But the, when when I you know looked at what they did and how they picked that one statement and said yes, you know they defamed Amber Heard with that one statement. That was the only statement out of all six that didn't mention domestic abuse, physical abuse, sexual violence, sexual allegation. It was the only one. It just said that her friends fake roughed up the pet house, and they essentially believed that that's not that wasn't true, that they didn't fake rough up the penthouse. I I was even more impressed with the jury after that. I thought that was so nuanced in their part. Is yeah. They really believed that they, you know, that she lied about the physical abuse, but couldn't really determine if her friends had fake roughed up the penthouse enough. I, I, I think that they did a really good job. I'm, I'm really glad that you pointed that out because it, kind of the immediate reaction from a lot of people who, either weren't following it all that closely or don't understand the nuance as well as you do, thought that these were, you know, they were calling them inconsistent verdicts. Well, how can you say that that she was lying and defaming him and that he was also lying de and defaming her? Well, then they must have believed that he was somehow violent against her. And you, 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 you absolutely made that point clear. No, of all the things that were alleged here, there was one statement that really didn't have to do with domestic violence at all. And it had to do with, like you said, he said that they, they had staged the scene along with her, her attorneys and PR people. So now he's implicating this entire grand conspiracy of folks to stage this scene. And there just wasn't evidence of that. And so, mm -hmm. you know, we can go back and forth about whether or not that rises to the level of defamation. But the jurors, I think you're absolutely right, were paying attention. It wasn't just mm -hmm. some blanket verdict. We believe him and not you. They were paying attention. And that for them to find a verdict on that and award damages like they did, I think they were a very conscientious jury. I agree with you. Um, Amber's team has already indicated that they're going to appeal. Is that surprising? No, definitely not. Anybody that is, uh, you know, loses and has to pay that kind of money absolutely appeals. You know, people have been asking me, um, you know, because since I post all these videos, I get a lot of questions from people. Does she have the money, right? Does she have the money to appeal? And I think in Virginia, it sounds like you have to post a bond for the amount to appeal. And there's all sorts of questions out there about that. But I think that Elaine, although she said on the Today Show that Amber doesn't have the, you know, 10 million and change that she owes him, 
certainly made it sound like they're about to appeal. So I'm not quite sure how she's going to finance it, but that didn't seem to be a question. She was already listing the appellate issues. I mean, you know, as a lawyer, we could hear exactly what she was saying on them. I didn't think they were very strong. I think the only appellate issue that could possibly be strong is if when we start hearing from the jurors or after the one year kind of passes and they're able to interview the jurors, if they do find out that the jurors were looking at social media and kind of violated yeah. the judge's orders. Otherwise, her other appellate issues she'd argued about, like excluding evidence, both sides had evidence excluded. You know, I'm sure this judge was amazing. She seemed very careful. I imagine she was consistent with the way she was applying the law. Uh, so to me, I think their best hope would be if they were some sort of like jury misconduct. Yeah, I, I agree with you. The The only other thing that kind of flashed into my head when I was trying to think of what could they possibly appeal on is, you remember there was that moment in court uh, that kind of went viral where Amber was testifying about being on the staircase and I thought of Kate Moss and Johnny's team all reacted with like fist pumps and they that, that was the greatest thing. And we realized, oh, okay, somehow she opened up the door to Kate Moss now being able to testify and Kate Moss did testify. And I thought, okay, well, there must have been some pretty significant in limne motions before trial about whether or not certain people could testify, and she opened the door with that. You saw Kate Moss's testimony, and it was really, it was kind of a big nothing, right? She just said, no, he never pushed me down the stairs. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, again, we're all kind of trying to read tea leaves here and figure out what they would actually appeal on. All I know is that good attorneys will just find every issue to appeal on. <laughs> Dina, one thing that uh, Amber's attorney, Elaine Bredehoft, uh, did point out during this post-interview is that she she made a big deal over the fact that the they prevailed in the UK as possibly being grounds for why this was inconsistent here in the US. Do you think that holds water at all? You know, I, you know, he it's interesting because I also read like a Washington Post article that they were quoting somebody talking about how oh, they, he won in uh, the UK because it was a judge and we have a jury system and the juries are influenced. And I just, I just think it's all kind of distasteful. The fact that, you know, I know why her lawyer's doing it. She's trying to change public opinion. She's trying to yeah. set it up for appeal, but it doesn't matter if he lost in the UK. It's a completely different legal system. They have different rules of evidence. He does just have a judge. That should be no bearing on somebody's claims here whether it's guilt or innocence or any claims has nothing to do with it and um i you know any insinuation that somehow uh, the jury here got it wrong because it's regular people is offensive our jury system is amazing and, <laughs> and it works <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that go usa i like it exactly what is the likelihood you think johnny ever sees this 8.35 million that's a really good question. You know, he made it really clear in closing it wasn't about the money. So I guess now we're going to find out if he meant it or not, because I don't see him even going after her that much about it. I mean, he might, you know, he might want to. His lawyers, I'm sure, will want to kind of like do what they need to do to pursue the money. But if Elaine is right, you know, it just may not be there. Although she, I don't know what her situation is. She might have some Aquaman residuals that still continue to come in and it's possible she doesn't want to declare bankruptcy and, and she will kind of pay this judgment over time. So yeah. it's hard to yeah. know. Uh, last question. Did this accomplish 
Johnny's real goal? Has he resurrected his reputation and career in your view? I think it accomplished what he wanted. I mean, what more could he have gotten, really, right? Uh, whether or not it completely, I think it changed a lot of people's minds. I still see so much press, though. It, acting as if um, the jury just set aside the Me Too movement when they found huh. for Johnny Depp. And that really bothers me as somebody who watched the trial. I really believe that if somebody says that, they probably didn't watch the trial like you and I did. I mean, I was constantly watching that trial too, because I think it comes, and my takeaway is not that women aren't to be believed, and I don't think that's what the jury was saying at all. I think it's saying if you're going to come to the stand, you got to be truthful. And if you're con yeah. inconsistencies, if you're exaggerating, like, sorry, you know, we ex do expect people to be truthful on the stand. This should not be portrayed in the media as some sort of like, um, you know, idea around the movement. And I'm hoping that maybe as this gets processed, the way it's being reported might change a little bit. Yeah, no, I agree with you. If you if you think this was about men in power, go ahead and take a look at her testimony again in cross-examination, and, and it might just change your mind. Exactly. Uh, Dina, thank you so much for coming on this week. Where can people find out more about you? It was so much fun. Thanks for having me. So they can follow me. I'm at Ask Dina Doll uh, pretty much on all platforms. Twitter, TikTok. Like I said, I post VCAP videos of a lot of legal issues. And I love Instagram, them. Facebook, YouTube. Fantastic. Those. Fantastic. And I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ. And you can find our Sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD Sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar. <laughs>